0: As everybody knows I have a lot of kids and my first five were boys, which was awesome for me. It, I was a boy dad and it and it worked and I was like I was like like the dad of boy dad like, like big time. I used to make my boys stand in line and practice shaking my hand like like when you shake a man's hand, you give him a firm handshake, like, and you look him in his eyes, like, and you, you know, and uh, it's a sign of respect. And so they would stand in line of practice. How's this, Dad? You know, and look me in the eyes and shake my hand. I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. Like, in, and and uh, and we did man things, and we, you know, we we had a game. This is terrible. And if anybody had seen it, I would have gotten arrested. It's that bad. But the kids begged for it every night. I kid you not. We called it snaps, and every night they would go, Dad, can we play snaps? Can we play snaps? At bedtime, we had I I'd, I'd finished off the attic into a boys' bedroom, and it looked like seven, se, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It was because the the ceiling was sloped with the attic, and it was just bed, 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 bed down down the long attic room, and uh, and one of the boys had a blanket. It was like their special blanket, and I mean, if you snap that thing, it if would. Rock your world. It was like a sonic boom when you snap this thing. And the boys used to, so they would hide under their covers and they would try to jump from bed to bed before I could snap them. And, and they wanted to play this game, I swear. And if I was going light on them, they're like, Yeah, you're going light on us. Like, they'd get mad. And I mean, when I got him, it was awful. And we had a rule, three cries and we're done. Like that's three cries and it's time to go to bed. And so Joshua, who was one of the younger ones, I'd get him and all the other boys, like you'd see his face well enough, and all the other boys going, you okay, buddy, you're okay, you okay, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Like, because they didn't want to quit. It was terrible. Like, and, and I, I swear they would not go to bed if I didn't whip them a little bit with this stupid blanket. But um, but but we were a very masculine household. Like we we did man stuff all the time, and uh, I think I've told you guys about like Fight Club and and some of the things we did, just just brutal man stuff. And then we had our sixth child, and and by this time I like I figured I had it like zoned in. Like I knew how to make boys, and I I had the magic down, and so I had no fears whatsoever. And Hannah comes in to the world with no stem on the apple, and 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 I, the, literally, we have it on film. Um, I can't even say the real word I said, but but it was some version of "Oh no, now what am I going to do?" Like I, that's what I said. I said, "Oh no, now what am I going to do?" And I had zero plan. I had not even dreamed of having a daughter. Like my two greatest skills as a dad was logic and intimidation. Neither of which worked on my daughter like I was lost. I did not have any clue. She was not afraid of me even a little bit like my boys. I could like enough and they would like like and she was like whatever like she had no zero fear of dad. And and of course when you have five boys and then you have a girl like everybody think my house looked like a, a Pepto Bismol vomit. Fest. Like everything was pink. Suddenly in my masculine house, everything turned pink. Nobody bought Hannah anything that wasn't pink. And what's funny is now all of my girls are pretty like, uh, tomboyish. Like they, they grew up with 12 brothers. So like they're, none of them are very girly. But, but, uh, yeah, there for a while, Hannah would wear nothing if it wasn't pink. Like everything in my house. Was pink. And so I had to learn to be uh, like a girl dad. I had to learn how to do um, girl dad kind of stuff and and do tea parties and and all the fun girl things. I got pretty decent at it, except like I took my boys out and did the like had the talk, you know, like um, the talk. In fact, I took Josiah Matthew out like four times. They didn't know they were going out to get the talk because I chickened out like halfway through, so it just became ice cream. And I'd walk in the house, and Ezra was like, how'd it go? I was like, I couldn't do it. I, I didn't even know how to do it. Um, and so finally I got brave enough and I did it. And, uh, and they weren't really ready for it, and so we did this kind of, we did this like, I'm not going to tell you what I'm talking about, because if, like, I'm not going to give you any details, because if I did, you'd tell me I was gross, and there's no way you're ever going to want to do that. So you're going to have to take my word for this that this is something you're going to want to do someday and we have to talk and prepare for that because they weren't really ready but um, but when Hannah got old enough I took Hannah out to do the thing like I've never done it with a girl like I was like and I had no clue what to do and so we went shopping and then we went to like uh, uh, Olive Garden and we did like daddy-daughter things and I sat her down and, and and I gave this clumsy tripping over my words like blah and it went for like 45 minutes of just dumb ramble like and and we get done, and she just sat there, like, big-eyed and blah, blah, blah. And, uh And I was like, you got any questions? And she goes, Dad, Mom had this talk with me a year ago. I just wanted to see how you'd do it. <laughs> and she just let me sit there and sweat. I was physically sweating down my face. So, so yeah, um,
1: everything changed
0: in my life the second I had a girl. Some of you guys had girls first and, and didn't have a chance to get in a rut. But I had time to, to get in a rut. Anyway, we'll talk about that more at the end. Well, this is our 17th week um, in uh, in this long summer series through Romans. 18th if you count our fifth Sunday family service where we did a Romans verse. And then 19th if you count Baptism Sunday, which is about as book of Romans as you could get. But whatever week you say it is, um, we've been in Romans for a while. And uh, and we're beginning to bring it in for a landing. Um Next week will be kind of our conclusion to the book, um, and I think I'm going to miss this series. This series been fruitful to anybody else? Has this been a good series for anybody else? I've I've enjoyed this series a lot. Um, well, just a little heads up. Um, like I said, September is going to be our identity series. Uh, it's it's we're going to talk about why we planted the church, um, how God's kind of moved us around, why we do some of the things we do, um, just in general what we feel called to as a church. Um, this is also where we'll talk about some of the ministries that are starting back up uh, after taking the summer off. And the, the part I, I left out a minute ago, um, we'll also be uh, asking for volunteers. And here's the thing, if you volunteer downstairs, um, even if you're, you're volunteering, you love it, we want you to sign back up again. Um, I don't like that you ever have to quit a volunteer spot. Um, like where you have to come up and go, I can't do this anymore. You know, that feels weird when you're volunteering to have to quit. So we're going to do it in year long cycles. So if you sign up, like and if you have to, if you have to step out for some time during the year, you obviously can, but, uh, but that way there's a natural exit ramp. If, if it's just not for you or you want to try something different. Um, so even if you're doing it and everything's working, we'll sign back up in September um, to say, I want to, I want to go around again, um, which is, which is cool. So, um, So we'll be, uh, we'll be asking you to buy in. Um, September's when we do that. When we ask you to join us. And, uh, if, if you haven't yet, um, to say, uh, I want to be a part and, and do what I can to make the, the awesome ministries here, uh, continue to happen. So this morning we're going to be finishing the second half of chapter 15 of Romans. Um, and I'm really excited, um, about what I feel God's going to say to us today. But, uh, I think, uh, what we're going to do is dive into the first two verses and then let them kind of take us back into our review of last week. So we're in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, if you follow in your own Bibles. Uh, Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises He made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for His mercies to them. Now, considering what we talked about last week, Um, This kind of really practical, plain-spoken topic of how to handle differences of opinion among believers where Paul introduces um, the entire subject with this kind of highly convicting um, verse. Don't argue um, with them about what they think is right and wrong. That's tough. And Paul says it blankly. Uh, Accept other believers who are weak in the faith. Don't argue with them. About what they think is right and wrong. That's like what we do. That's like, that is like the, the, the church could have that tattooed on its shoulder like that. And, uh, and Paul says don't do that. It's, it's, and, and so after that discussion, it can feel drastic that Paul goes from this kind of real earthy, nitty gritty talk about how to handle differences of opinion, to remember that Christ became a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to his promises he made to his ancestors and also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to him for his mercies. Um, But actually, the way that these two verses take us back into the argument from last week while also kind of helping Paul transition into his final statements for this letter is really cool. So we're going to start with a recap of last week um, without kind of re-preaching the message, which I would love to do, because like I said last week, chapter 14 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, but the gist of that message was this. There is absolute truth. I don't know if I said that strong enough last week. Good and evil are objective realities. Chapter 14 is not about how to figure those out, though. It's not about how to know what's objectively true and what's not. It's not a passage designed to handle um, the, the the gray areas either, though. It's not about it's not saying there's no objective truth. You know, your truth is your truth and his truth is his truth. That's not what it's saying. It's also not saying this is how to deal with the gray areas that don't really matter. Chapter 14 is about how to live with real humans who are trying really hard to navigate and, and apply absolute truth. It's about living with real people who are trying to do their best to, 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 to live out real truth. Um, it's not a wishy-washy, what's true to you isn't necessarily true to somebody else. It's two people who are coming at truth from two different ways and have to figure out how to live together. Um, It's not saying that truth doesn't matter. Some people are afraid of that chapter because they're afraid it's going, oh, so something that's true to me isn't necessarily true to somebody. No, 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 that's not what it's saying. Um, It's saying that fighting over right and wrong has never helped. Humanity has been doing that for millennia. Fighting over right and wrong for millennia. And you know what hasn't happened? We have not grown any less sinful. It it has done us no good. We haven't like figured anything out by fighting over it. By by beating each other up over what we think is right and wrong. We haven't fixed any of our problems. Um, Paul doesn't actually tell us anything about what's actually right and wrong in this chapter. What he does is something that's really powerful that I think is really, really needed today. He takes the time to explain how two people on opposite sides of a debate could actually be both trying to work really hard to serve God. Can you imagine how valuable that might be today? If we could imagine uh, looking at somebody that we completely disagree with and, and stopping for half a second to look at what kind of pain they might be covering. What kind of abuse they receive that they might be trying to mend. What kind of wrong they've experienced that they're trying to right. We get so hung up on the actual behavior that we seem incapable of realizing that there are motives behind those things that we can't see at play. And Paul is like, this person eats because they want to honor God. And realizing that an idol is just a statue and it elevates God to not give that statue any power over my meat or life or anything. Like, I elevate God by saying that's just a chunk of wood. Like, and I'm not going to even give that thing space in my world. And another person refuses to eat meat from that marketplace because that marketplace was part of their old life. And now that they've come to Christ, they want to be different. They don't want to live that old life. They want to leave those things behind. They don't want anything to do with that old marketplace. And Paul is like, these two people are fighting over whether to eat or not eat. And by fighting, they're completely missing how passionately they're both trying to honor and serve God. They're getting so hung up on the details. You have two people who are both trying with their whole life to honor and serve God, and somehow they're fighting with each other. And Paul's like, this makes no sense. It's like, how could two people who want nothing more than to live for God and make Him big in their eyes and in the world get so hung up on a dinner plate that they wind up on opposite sides of an argument? So Paul's first thesis in this passage is that fighting over... Crazy stuff is counterproductive. And I will add this. We've talked a lot since we've gotten uh, to chapter 12 of Romans about the indicative imperative kind of style Paul uses um, in in a lot of his letters where he tells us what is, and then he tells us how we're supposed to respond to that. He tells the indicative uh, part of his letter is always this is the truth. This is what God did. This is This is what is real. And then he shifts and he goes, and this is how you apply that. This is how that lives out in the world. This is what's the the imperative reality. Uh, And here's the deal. If you like to cling to absolute truth, um, if you are driven by objective reality, um, if you're the type who likes to share with others what is genuinely God-given reality, then I submit that the indicative side of Paul's letters is for you. Because that stuff is real. It's true. It's unbending. Paul's entire purpose for the indicative part of of his gospel treatise is so we will know what is. We are all sinners. That is true. He states that in chapter 1. Non-negotiable. God as an act of sovereign grace sent Jesus as payment for our sin. That's real. We have real, when we have real relational faith in that reality, we're at peace with God. That's objectively true. Though we fight our sin, ultimately, we learn that we have two natures. The nature born into us when we accept Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And a nature that is sinful and sticks around until Jesus fully redeems us and we're with Him. That's non-negotiable. And there's no condemnation in Christ. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus. That's not open for debate. God is sovereign in the world in a way that neither Paul nor we can fully understand. He's in control. And this should bring us great comfort. We can trust it like gravity. That's objectively true. We can base our faith on it. Base our life on it. Base our complete understanding of reality on it. Because that's the indicative part of the letter. This is what is true. When it comes to the imperative part, everything gets more complicated. Lay your life down as a living sacrifice. Allow the gospel to work inside of you so that it does a work that you can't do yourself. He says, don't just act like you love people. Actually love them. Well, how do you do that? Don't just be hospitable. Be eager to be hospitable. Well, how do you muster up eagerness? He's like, the gospel has to go in and do a work inside you. It's not something that can happen from the outside pressure. It has to be a work that's done in you. Well, you can't judge that in somebody else. How do you judge eagerness? Ah, I saw that you were hospitable, but you didn't seem eager. So, I think maybe you need to repent. He says, you know, be a good citizen. Live out your convictions and above all else, let love for others drive and define the way you live in the world. It's really hard to, to, to hammer objectivity in that setting. If you like objectivity, the first half of the book is for you. Because Paul says, this is what is real. This is what God did, and that's real. And here's the deal. If we want to cling to absolute truth, that's where we go. I went the wrong way a second ago. Wow, I jumped all over the place. must have been down here clicking without knowing it. I jumped like six six pages. So Paul tells us to love and let that be what drives our behavior. And It's actually that linking idea um, that holds together the last several weeks. He says it over and over again, chapter by chapter. Let love drive all of this. Two weeks ago we talked about how Paul uses Jesus' teaching of the greatest commandment as a summation of how we should live in the world. If you love your neighbor... As yourself, you won't commit all these other sins, he says. And then Paul starts to put shoes on that, which we talked about last week. He tells us not to fight over what we think is right and wrong, but instead, why not just think about the other person? Why debate over the details? Why not just lay down a liberty if you have to? Why not just lay something down that you love if it's good for somebody else? Because that's what love looks like. Holy cow, can you imagine if we just could do that in our marriages. Like, if the Christian world just did that in their marriages, learned to to lay something down for the good of the other, what kind of a revival we could start in our country when as many Christians are getting divorced as other people. Like, what a difference that might make in our testimony if we just got this truth into our marriages, if nothing else. I think we could start a movement hell couldn't stop. But Paul tells us to be willing to lay down our wants, our desires, even our God-given liberties, if it's for the good of another brother or sister in Christ. And we could unpack just how far Paul took that if we had time. He says stuff like, um, I've become all things to all men, that I might save some. I'm a Jew to the Jews. I'm a Gentile to the Gentiles. Um, And some of us might call that hypocrisy. But Paul knows he wasn't trying to hide any of his liberties. He had letters bouncing around the Roman Empire full of his liberties. Like he wasn't trying to hide anything. There there was no hiding for Paul. He wrote it all down and sent it around. But he was honoring the people he was with. He was saying, you're more important to me than than these liberties. What Paul is actually doing is living out the verse, love your neighbor as yourself. He's putting feet on that. And in his wrap-up, Paul tells us that this is so important, it's ultimately a, you know, another parabolic bumper sticker worthy moment. And this is what he gets into today. He says, for even Christ didn't live to please himself. If, if, if you're like, why should I have to lay down my liberties for the convictions of another? Like, why is it my responsibility to think about somebody else's convictions? Why can't we all just mind our own business? If you've got some of that in you, and I have to admit, I do, like that's that's where I tend to lean, then, then I would suggest you shift your focus to Jesus. Take it off the other person and shift it to Jesus. Who certainly did not have to adjust his life to save us. Certainly did not have to sacrifice himself for us. He most certainly didn't have to leave perfection and step into our mess for us. He didn't have to do that. So if love your neighbor as yourself doesn't work for you, if that feels a bit too impressive, then go with the other bumper sticker bracelet slogan. What would Jesus do? Stick with that one if that one's easier. If love your neighbor as yourself feels too pushy, then try what would Jesus do? Because Paul isn't telling us to love others because it's some Old Testament command, some black and white verse that we're supposed to uh, use to control people. He's telling us how to live because... We walk in the footprints of a Savior who lived that way. We don't do it just because it's a command from the law. We do it because Jesus did it. And we're following in the footprints of a Savior who did that, who gave up His own freedom, who gave up His own ease, who gave up His own liberty for the good of others. Jesus modeled sacrificial living for us. And what else can we do in light of all we've gained other than to try and live the same way? So Paul wraps up his, his reminder that there's a reason why we think about others first. Then this morning, he uses Jesus' example to explain why he's even gone down this whole meat-offered-up-to-idols tangent. And it's how he opened this morning's passage. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises He made to their ancestors. He also came that Gentiles might give glory to God for His mercies to them. And this is really cool because what can be really easy for us to forget is that this debate over meat um, bought in a Roman marketplace is completely and utterly a Gentile argument. Like we don't understand how unique that is in the Scripture. This is only a Gentile argument. It's kind of cool. Right here in in a Bible that is kind of Totally Jewish is this utterly non-Jewish debate. See, last week we read things um, that the apostles and elders in Jerusalem commanded the Gentile church to follow. And, and, And how many have tripped over that list and wondered what on earth that list has to say to us today? It's a weird list. Because as we said last week, for a long time, this this was the closest thing these people had to a New Testament in, in their day. While the New Testament was being written, the letter from the Council of Jerusalem was the closest thing they had to any behavioral rules. And here's that list again. It says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, or from sexual immorality. If you do this, you'll do well. Farewell. That's all they gave them. As I said last week, I said last week, there was five things, I miscounted, there's only four. Nothing offered up to idols, nothing with the blood still in it, nothing strangled, and no sexual immorality. That's the list, and it's a little weird. <clears throat> and theologians have wrestled over this for 2,000 years. How did strangled animals make the list and stealing not make it? That's weird. If you want to modernize it, how did meat with blood in it make the list and there's nothing about abortion? And I've never heard a satisfactory explanation from any theologian or commentator in my 30 years of studying this. But I've also never heard a modern Christian use this as a guide for living. Have you ever inquired of the butcher at Price Shoppers or wherever you buy your meat as to the method of execution of your hamburger? Anyone? It's black and white Bible. Have you ever gone? Hey, this wasn't strangled, was it? Like, I just want to make sure I'm a Christian. These chicken quarters were these uh, were these strangled or how did you kill these? I'm a Christian and it's important to me because it's in the Bible. I've never heard anybody quote this list as a behavioral mandate. Interestingly enough, the person who I feel cracked this case was not a theologian at all. Though many theologians, I believe every living theologian has adopted his interpretation um, since he did it. But it was a secular historian um, who specializes in Hellenistic culture, culture of that era. Um, he was reading the Bible purely as a historical text. And he read this list and he immediately recognized all four of those things were associated with first century uh, Roman pagan worship. They were things you did as part of your worship. So with no theological axe to grind at all, the historian writes that it seems clear that the founders of the Christian faith were not interested in Gentiles becoming Jews, but they also weren't prepared to allow them to continue their pagan worship practices as they joined the family of God. In other words, you don't have to fit into a mold to become a Christian. There's not a list of rules, but that doesn't mean you won't have to change. Paul's like, you don't have to become a Jew, but you can't keep doing that either. (laughs) Like, those things are your old worship. That's your old life. You have to walk away from those. So no, you don't have to become a Jew, but you also can't stay a pagan. There's a new new life. And I I think it's the same for us. We don't have a set of rules you have to follow. That doesn't mean you're not going to have to change. Or maybe a better way of saying it, it doesn't mean God's not going to change you. Because absolutely He's going to change you. I sat down with a kid, uh, for lunch who was struggling with church, brought up in church. He's kind of left, got into a mess, and he was like, I'm afraid. He's like, I kind of like who I've become. And I'm afraid, uh, and, and I'll be honest, we're sitting at a booth at a restaurant. He's, uh, got a beard about as thick as mine, and he's wearing a dress. And, and he was like, I, I like who I've become, and I'm afraid God's gonna ask me to change. I said, oh, he's absolutely gonna ask you to change. And it might have nothing to do with your dress. Like I, I can't tell you where he's gonna ask you to change, but everybody that walks in the door changes. Like he asks all of us to change. He works on all of us. He might work on something you're totally unprepared for. He might he might reveal to you you got more racism than you need and, and take want to take that out of your heart. Like it may have nothing to do with what you're wearing, but yeah, you're gonna change. Don't come in thinking you can come in and not change. He changes all of us. Like he dives in and goes to work the second we walk in the door. You know, I was like, the the thing is, you're thinking these. There's a mold. I'm, no, there's no mold, but there's change. It's the Bible uses the word metamorphosis. Like he's gonna turn you. He's gonna turn you into something totally new. If, anyway, so this. So that historian, <laughs> and and like I say, most living theologians have adopted his his thing. Um, his interpretation is that the apostles and 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 elders aren't necessarily arguing for obedience to these four rules as much as they're they're insisting that these these new followers of Jesus release their pagan worship practices. Which means as worship practices change, that list would change. You can't stay the same as you were. And this is pretty monumental as it as a uh, sets an important precedent, I think, to us living 2,000 years later. Because Jesus was a Jew. And he lived in a Jewish country full of Jewish debates, uh, fulfilling Jewish prophecies. The religious leaders asked him standard Jewish, religio-political questions about Torah and how it should be lived out in the world. Even how Torah affects their relationship to Rome, who ruled over them. Is its it... Is it Biblical to pay taxes to Caesar? Like they were asking Jewish questions. These were questions about how to apply certain scriptures. Where to, where is the proper place for worship for a Jew or a Samaritan? What was and wasn't sin according to Torah? And for us, these things sound natural because we've been grafted into those debates by faith in Jesus. But it's very interesting to consider that Jesus didn't have any debates while he walked on earth, about where you could buy meat in a Roman marketplace. That didn't come into it. He didn't talk about whether a sub-Saharan African woman, once she accepts Jesus, needs to wear a shirt to cover the breasts that she's never covered in her entire life. Many missionaries have had to struggle with that. Does becoming a Christian mean covering up something you've never had to cover before? There's no cultural reason to. But the missionaries are like, let's put something on those. Like... Jesus didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about the ethics of a multinational corporation using third world labor to make more money in the developed world. Jesus didn't mention it. He didn't wrestle with how to maintain your faith on social media without it turning into weird marketing or fruitless debates. He didn't mention it. He didn't talk about environmentalism or conservation. He didn't talk about a single hot button American political platform issue. And it would be tempting to think the Bible really only talks about what the Bible talks about. In other words, it would be simple and easy to think that the Bible has nothing to say to modern concerns and contemporary issues. Which is why I love this, this discussion because the very first Christians to live after Jesus ascended found themselves trying to figure out how to live in a world that was very different from the world Jesus lived in. Yeah, they're only you know a thousand miles away. But Jesus didn't live in a marketplace, and that's, and a lot of people have criticized the, the elders and leaders in Jerusalem because they were like, yeah, you can buy meat all over the place. We can't buy meat that wasn't offered to an idol. How are we supposed to eat? You're giving us these rules that, like, there are, is no meat up here that hasn't been offered to an idol somewhere. It was a very different world in Rome than it was in Jerusalem, and here the very first Christians are having a purely Roman, Gentile debate, and they're using the Bible to have it which means our debates that aren't Jewish debates, they're not first century debates, they're 2023 debates, can still rely on the Bible to inform those debates. This morning's passage, Paul speaks to, the, uh, to that. He says, yes, Jesus came to answer all those questions and fulfill all those Jewish prophecies and ultimately end all those Jewish debates. He said, yes, He came to the Jews. But guess what? He came to the Gentiles too to answer those questions and end those debates. He's here for those too, and I believe that means 40 AD debates. I believe it means 500 AD debates, and I believe it means 2023 questions and debates. Paul basically says chapters 14 and the first half of 15 basically prove that Jesus isn't just about. Adam and Abraham and Moses and David. He's also about Roman markets and Wellsville farmers markets and stock markets. Paul's point is that the same Jewish rabbi is, is the savior of all cultures at all times and in all places. And then Paul ties these ancient prophecies about Jesus to this kind of new, in Paul's day, uh, Gentile cultural debate about meat and wine and holy days With a handful of really cool passages. He says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Whoops. I put that in a weird place. He said, He came that He might give, uh, uh, that the Gentiles might give glory to God for His mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place it's written, Rejoice with His people, you Gentiles. And yet again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise Him, all you people of the earth. In another place, Isaiah said, the heir of David's throne will come and He will rule over the Gentiles. And they will place their hope in Him. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is like, Jesus has something to say about your issues. I know that you you probably never dreamed in a million years talking to them that the Bible would have anything to say this, this very regional book written to a set group of people would have anything to say about the marketplaces in, in Rome but it does is what he's saying. All of that is for you too. It speaks to your world too. He is the world Savior. He's not a Jewish Savior. He's not even a Christian Savior. He's the world's Savior. Then Paul starts to end his letter. And he's back to a very similar place to where he started in chapter one, going through this kind of in Jewish, this entire Jewish tabernacle kind of walk. And then he wound up in this remarkably non-Jewish debate over whether your ribeyes are locally sourced or grass-fed, idol free beef. Um, Paul uses that transition, uh, to note kind of his unique position of apostleship, specifically called to speak to Gentiles. He says this, I'm fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well, you can teach others all about them. Even so, I've been bold enough to write about, because remember, he didn't know these people he was writing to. He's writing to make sure they had a clear understanding of the Gospel. Even so, I've been so bold to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need is this reminder, for by God's grace, I am a special messenger of Jesus Christ to you Gentiles. That's us. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. So Paul starts to wrap up his letter with some distinctions that I think would be good for us to wrestle with as we start to kind of bring this letter to a close in our own study. He says that I am a special messenger from Jesus Christ to you Gentiles. Now before I apply this to our life, let's look at what Paul's referring to here. Um, the, the last few verses of Romans 15 um, does more to kind of date and validate and qualify this letter than anything else in it. Um, if you're interested in some of the stuff that, that makes our Bibles kind of historically reliable, this is one of those. Um, Paul writes this towards the end of uh, this chapter. He says, uh, in fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I have been preaching in these places and now I'm finished the work. In these regions, after all these long years of waiting, I'm eager to visit you. I'm planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I'll stop off in Rome. And after I've enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem and take a gift to the believers there. For you see, uh, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering uh, for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. And they're glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received spiritual blessings... Of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel uh, the, le- the least they can do in return is help them financially. And so I've delivered this as I've delivered this money and completed this good deed uh, of theirs, I will come to you on my way to Spain. Those few details prove um, to be really, really important in tying the New Testament narrative together and making Romans a really really reliable, Source material, um, if this stuff is what the stuff that kind of turns you on, this is cool. Um, first, we know from the book of Acts and the end of 1st Corinthians and, and pretty much all of 2nd Corinthians exactly when this trip that Paul's talking about takes place. Um, this offer offering gathered by Paul's churches, um, we know when it happened. Uh, We also have some evidence from other secular writings when the famine that caused this poverty happened. So we can kind of nail this down to a year um, when Paul was writing this letter and planning to deliver this money to Jerusalem and then try to go to Spain. Um, The close connection in the narrative in Acts uh, when this trip designed to raise these funds for Jerusalem um, is outlined by a totally different author is really significant historians have a way of like lending credibility to a text. They have certain criteria you have to meet for something to be kind of historically credible. Uh, and the fact that the Bible has one author, uh, Luke writing a narrative to, a, to, a, to Theophilus, a totally different audience. And you've got Paul writing something to a totally different audience. And the two of them probably had no idea that the other one was writing. And they both tell the same story at about the same time that, Tells things happening the same way in kind of secular historical senses that lends a ton of credibility to the letter. Uh, most historians say Acts is one of the most historically credible documents of that era, like in terms of like provability, like everything all the way down to the storm that shipwrecked Paul. Like they have records of that storm from other secular uh, authors. Acts is like one of the most incredibly accurate historical texts of the first century. Um, whoops. There we go. We'll get that later. Um, <laughs> Elijah, will get it. Uh, <laughs> but we know when that happens. So, um, so Luke telling the same. And Luke tells it from afterwards. Luke tells how Paul delivered um, the offering, got arrested while he was there, and wound up going to Rome um, in chains. To argue his case before Caesar, so the Rome, the trip to Spain never happened, unfortunately. But uh, but Paul, but the fact that they're both telling different stories makes us know exactly when this letter was written and the kind of the surrounding context. Um, But the important thing that I want to catch is that Paul feels fully qualified to write this letter to Rome, to people he's never met before, to people he has no relationship with, because he knew he had a special calling. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, he says. Which is another reference that ties us back to Paul. Because in, in Galatians, Paul says this. Instead, they they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. So that happened in Acts 15. Peter and Paul have a little wind-up. They shake hands. They go in two different directions. Um, and and Paul talks about it in Galatians. So now we got three books again, Galatians, Romans, and and Acts, all telling the same story again, which is kind of a cool thing which to us, it's all in one Bible, so it makes sense. But we got to remember, these were, these were separate letters that all got pulled together 300 years later, like the, that all had the same story being told by different authors at different times. That's pretty unheard of in, in the historical world. But in, in Galatians, Paul is telling, talking about this council in, in Acts 15 that Luke records in Acts. And in that council meeting, Paul is basically recognized as the apostle to the Gentiles. So again, we have multiple occurrences of the same thing, kind of lending credibility to our Scripture. Um, And though I think those kind of details are are important because they remind us there's very good reasons why we trust our Bibles, Um, ultimately the thing I want to get to is Paul's special calling, his unique calling. Because sometimes we act like there's a one-size-fits-all generic calling to spread the Gospel and advance the Kingdom of God. And I think Paul would argue that that's not the case. He had a particular voice among Gentiles that other apostles didn't have. And he constantly tried to share the gospel with Jews. Every town he went into, he went to the synagogue first. And usually they didn't listen to him. And he said, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. He did it over and over again in the book of Acts. Paul had a very special calling. In fact, he even tells the Romans that his calling was even more specific than just the Gentiles. He said, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ had never been heard rather than where the church was already started by someone else. I've been following the plan spoken of in all the Scriptures where it says, those who have never heard, those who have never been told about Him will see, and those who have never heard of Him will understand. So Paul is a true missionary. He likes starting from the ground up. Not just church planning, but actually starting with all unbelievers, getting some folks saved, and then turning those newly saved people into a church. And Paul is good at that. And he knew what he was called to and he walked in that calling. So here's what I would love to wrestle with. And maybe this would be a better closing to next week's message, but I really feel like Paul kind of opens the door for us to talk about this today. Where do you have a voice that no one else has? Maybe it's a particular type of person. Maybe you're good at communicating the gospel to children. Maybe you're good at talking to blue-collar guys. Maybe you have a voice with with other moms at your kids' sports. Maybe you have neighbors you're building a relationship with. Maybe you're good with teens. Maybe you're good with people in prison. Maybe you do well with the heady intellectual types. Maybe you're good at doing apologetics with atheists. I can tell you this. If you're a parent, God has called you to share the Gospel with your children, if nothing else. Back in chapter 12, we talked about finding your fit. The very first thing Paul advises us to do after telling us to lay our our lives down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, is to figure out how you fit into the body. Figure out who you are and how that fits. I think part of that is figuring out who you're called to share the gospel with. Because though I do think they are like real evangelists, people who just have a heart to talk to anybody about the Gospel and they're gifted to talk to anybody about it. I've I've known people like that. A friend of mine, Hal, didn't walk into a gas station without witnessing, witnessing to somebody. Like, he didn't go anywhere without talking to somebody about Jesus. And I felt guilty every time I was with Hal. I was like, I'm so bad at that. I don't like that. <laughs> like, it feels so awkward. And somehow, Hal made it not awkward. Somebody would, you know... Ask him a simple question, and 45 seconds later, they're talking about Jesus. I was like, How? How do you do that? It didn't even sound pushy the way he did it. it just, he knew how to roll everything to talking about the gospel. So, I do think there are some people who are just evangelists. But I also feel that God has, has called all of us to someone, to something, to some fit. Maybe, maybe your job is to support the gospel. To, to, to free other people to, to share the gospel. But I think Paul points on the fact that that he had a voice that, that no one else had, in a place that no one else had. And when he stepped out of that, he was completely fruitless. He just did not do very good. the Apostle Paul had a hard time sharing the gospel among certain people. So I I want you to wrestle with that. Who am I called to share the gospel with? Who, who, Who am I good at talking to? Who has God called me to do that with? Which brings us to our response. How do we respond to this? One of the most important and nuanced statements in parenting is this phrase that my wife misuses all the time. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know better than that? Anybody ever heard that or used that? Come on, you know better than that. Yeah, my wife misuses this all the time. She sitting in the back giving me dirty looks. Because she'll use it with our dog. Like our goofy dog will come in the house and jump on the couch and just sit there happily wagging her tail. And she doesn't know if she's going to get pet, petted or wrestled or swatted. She doesn't know. If it's, if it's one of the kids that comes up, she's probably going to get petted. If I get up, come up, she's going to get wrestled and then quickly evicted. And then if Esther comes up, Esther's going to say, get off the couch. You know better than that. And if I'm close, I always go, but does she, does she know better? Because she's a dog. And she looks awful happy when she's up there. I don't think she knows better. I really don't think she knows better. We have really forward and obnoxious chickens who will, they'll come in the house if you leave the door open, they'll get in my car if I leave the window down. They'll dig in Esther's plants and pick and dust bathe if Esther catches them in the plants, she'll shoo them off and go, come on, you know better than that. And I'm like, do they? They're chickens. Their brains are about the size of a pea. They're like furry little tiny dinosaurs. I don't think they know anything. But they know how to find your rate, your truck. <laughs> they do know how to get in my truck. But that's an important question, isn't it? Whether or not you know better. What you can be held responsible for. Because when your kids are little and they have no teeth, biting is cute. It's hilarious. I used to laugh my butt off. When Josiah was a baby, I'd, I'd wrestle him and I'd like tickle his stomach with my nose, which I still do. And every once in a while my eyebrow would get too close to his mouth and he didn't just like bite. He like, like his whole body would flex and his face would turn into a little demon face and he would like, Argh! like he's trying to eat my eyebrow off my face. And it was the funniest thing. I used to laugh myself silly over it um, because he had no teeth and it didn't hurt at all and it was not a problem. But that same little kid figuring out in a fight with his brother that if I latch down on his shoulder, he screams and cries. Well, that's a whole other story, isn't it? And that's when you start to discipline because they know better. They know what they're doing at that point and that changes everything when you know better. Well, here we stand on this side of the book of Romans. If you've been here for most of this study, you know the gospel of Jesus Christ. The foundational teaching that Paul wanted to make sure that his church, that he had never visited before, knew. When it comes to the soul-saving gospel message, you now know better. We all stand here informed as to what the gospel message is all about. And if you've had trouble remembering over the last 17 to 19 weeks, I'll be summing it up next week. But now we have to wrestle with the question that I wrestled with when I looked down and saw a little girl. Oh, now what am I going to do? Now what are you going to do? You can't plead ignorance. You know better. You know the message that saves and changes those who put their faith in it. You know the hope of the world. And it's so much more than just stop sinning or stop acting stupid or stop doing dumb things. The real gospel message that Paul preached from city to city in the first century world, the message that turned the world upside down and offers to do the same thing again, that message is now in our hands. And maybe you feel like, I did holding Hannah, oh no, now what am I going to do? And that's a fair question, what are you going to do? Because now we have to act on it. So the the, the way that I would love to respond to this message is to wrestle with two questions. First, have you allowed the gospel of Jesus Christ to do its work in you? Have you fought through the layers of bad theology, denominational teaching, or just cultural Christianity to say, God, if this is the gospel, if it's really good news about a battle that has already been won, and my part is to merely believe you and surrender to the reality that you really are that good. And I really am a child of God at peace with the maker of heaven and earth. And even more than that, I can actually live that way. I can live like I'm a child of God. In fact, if the Gospel is really that good, it only makes sense that I live like it is. If you haven't gone through that process through this book, then I invite you, whether you've been a Christian for ten minutes or your whole life, I invite you to surrender to the Gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Give up on striving. Give up on behavior management except that you bring nothing eternal to the table. And and this entire endeavor we call Christianity is really about something that was done for you, a battle that was won for you, a price that was paid for you. And our only part in this process is to be in relationship with your patron, your Savior, Jesus Christ. I know that sounds easy, maybe too easy, but it's not. That is not easy. You'll want to earn something. It is wired in you to want to earn something. You'll want to compare yourself to a bigger mess than you. You'll want to do that. You'll want to, have to take a little bit of credit. But that's not how the gospel works. Trusting the gospel is literally a jump off of a cliff. And if it feels like an academic exercise rather than a faithful bunchy bungee, bungee jump hard in your throat type surrender then it's probably not the gospel because the gospel is about i am just trusting that it's you and going trusting that jesus did it all and that's hard to trust because surely i can improve my chances a little surely i can do something If I just live right. Surely it brings some credit. But the gospel says the battle's already been won. He already did it. And anything we do is just to be in relationship with Him and surrender to that. So if you're not there, if you haven't surrendered to the gospel message, cry out to the Holy Spirit this morning to help you give in and truly accept the good news. And the second question I'd love for us to wrestle with is, what does it look like to become a witness of the gospel message? Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in all these places. Who has God called you to share the gospel with? Who do you have a unique voice with? Paul knew his unique calling. What's yours? And how will you share it? Because as crazy as as we're all going with the insanity in the world right now, we know behavior management doesn't save the world. Legislation doesn't save the world. It might make us more comfortable. It might make the world easier for us to walk in, but it doesn't save the world. Only the gospel can do that. So how do we shape our interactions with the lost in this world in light of the true gospel message that we now have in our hearts? We'll not only talk more about this this next week, but God's already kind of given me our focus word for the next year, which is go. That's all he's told me is go. So I honestly believe that we're on the brink of of making a huge difference for the kingdom of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for today, as we gather around the table and sing one last song in response to God's word to us today, wrestle with those two questions. Have I allowed the gospel to work in my heart? And what am I going to do with that message now?